Chapter 6 From a Year Down Yonder A Dangerous Man Spring and I stirred. For my 16th birthday present in March, Mother sent me a dollar, all folded up. I don't know where she got it. The farmers planted alfalfa on the day after the new moon. The oats and clover went in. Now in April, they'd planted corn in the field next to Grandma's house. The sap was rising, and the seasons turned like a wheel. I hadn't seen much of Bootsy all winter long. She didn't turn up for her tree on the back porch anymore. She was finding her own suppers. Once in a while, I'd see her shadow against the snow. She was going about her business being a country cat. Then, in the spring, when you could smell the ground, Bootsy turned up. She found a way to climb the house, up the front porch trellis, I guess. She did her high-wire act along a slanting drain pipe all the way to my window. I never knew how she did it, though she could see in the dark. I'd let her in, of course, and Grandma knew. Bootsy would drop in off the windowsill. If she felt like it, she'd jump on my bed. I'd make a tent of the covers, and sometimes she'd take a chance and climb inside, eyes aglow like the dial on the filico. She'd claw a nest and curl up in the crook of my arm, like the old days. She was more of an armful now, and she smelled like the cob house. But Bootsy never lingered. Some nights she'd hear the faint thumping sound from the attic, and she didn't like it. She'd fight out of the covers, glare at the ceiling, and be gone. I'd ruled out ghosts, so I was used to that sound from above. Weeks went by without it, but I'd wake in the night, and it had been the thump from up there. Once, a bird cried out and suddenly stopped in the middle of the night. By April, Bootsy took time out of her busy schedule to bring me offerings. One afternoon, I found a robin's egg on my bed. Had the robin flown in the open window and laid it? But no, Bootsy must have carried it in her mouth all the way up the house for me. I was touched. The next one was a dried-up grasshopper, then a field mouse dead as a doornail, then part of a frog, very ripe. One day when I came in, the present on my bed moved, meowed. It was a kitten, a miniature Bootsy, with bird brittle bones and four white paws in the air. I named her April on the spot. She was so tiny and breakable, I was afraid to touch her. But I meant to keep her. She'd replace Bootsy. I'd get a box of sand up here for her and sneak food from... But then Bootsy appeared on the windowsill. Dropping down, she gave the ceiling a quick, cautious look. She leaped on the bed, snatched up her kitten by the scruff of the neck, and was out the window before you knew it. Bootsy had only brought her for a visit, to show me. Now she was taking her baby back to the cob house where they lived. So that's the way it worked. I stood in the afternoon light and shed a tear or two. It didn't take much to set me off, now that I was 16. That Saturday was summer warm. Bring down your sheets, Grandma hollered up the stairs at the crack of dawn. She liked to boil her laundry in a big pot over an open fire in the yard. She didn't have a ringer, so we wrung out the sheets by hand. It was like tug of war once she dug her heels in. By the time we hung them on the line, they were half dry and we were wet through. By noon, the day was so hot that we decided to wash our hair and sun dry it. We used rain barrel water and our homemade lye soap. I could still feel her knuckles in my scalp and that lye soap took forever to rinse out. I hadn't had a finger wave since last summer. Grandma had been cutting my hair. She pulled out her pins and combs to let down her hair, and that was a bigger job. Her hair fell to her waist. She bent into an enamel pan on an old pine table in the yard, and I lathered her head. Dig in, she said. Get them cooties where they live. But she had an awful lot of hair. We rinsed in cold water, and she came up gasping time after time. She wrung on her hair in the sun. It was wider than the clouds scuttling overhead. Oh, that bright afternoon scented with lye on the greening earth, and Grandma shaking our, uh, out enough white hair to nest a flock of birds. A spanking breeze had dried the sheets. 
I was taking them down when a man started across the side yard, a stranger. Grandma, I said to Warner. Whoa, she called out to him. What's your business? He carried nothing in his hands and looked travel-worn. I wondered if he was a drifter who wandered away from the Wabash tracks. I'm looking for a room, he said in a funny accent. He was a little fellow for this part of the country. Who sent you to me? You can picture how Grandma appeared to him. He looked up to see all that hair standing out around her, head like a mane. Her skirts were hiked to keep out the laundry fire. Each one of her legs was as big around as his waist. The postmistress, he said, blinking through horn-rimmed glasses. Grandma looked skeptical. Maxine Patch sent you to me? I knew Maxine Patch, the postmistress. When I was still sending my newsy notes to the county seat newspaper, I'd had to deal with her. I'd given up writing newsy notes before people found out who was writing them. I was learning from Grandma how to keep my business private. She, sorry, she just said I'd have to go door to door to see if anybody'd rent me a room. The stranger still stared. Grandma was such an awesome sight that he could hardly keep his thoughts in order. And you're the last house in town. Don't you people have a hotel around here? Used to, but it was burned to the ground in the War of 1812. Grandma watched him to see if he was dumb enough to believe that the War of 1812 had been fought here. He was. Where are you from, she asked. New York. He stood dropping, drooping in the yard, keeping his distance from Grandma. I'm here from the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. The government? Grandma's eyes narrowed. He nodded. I'm supposed to do some paintings in the post office. Give it to, to Coates, Grandma advised. The paint's about the only thing that's holding it up. The post office was a run-room shanty behind the coffee pot cafe. It used to be a barbershop. Not that kind of painting, he said, tired. I'm an artist. I work large, murals mostly. Now Grandma stared. But I knew what he meant. The federal government had sent WPA artists to Chicago to paint murals in public buildings up there. The lobbies were painted over with big, tough women and bulging men in work shirts, swinging hammers and sickles, all of them larger than life. So was Grandma, as the stranger could see. Well, you won't get a mural, mural at our post office, she told him. There's not room in that cracker box to hang up your tiny tin type. He knew that. But they cut my orders in Washington. Now Grandma's eyes narrowed to slits. That's our tax dollars in action, she said. What they paying you? Four dollars per denim, he said. Son, you're home, Grandma said. It ought to take you about a month not to paint a mural in the post office. I charge two dollars and fifty cents a day. You can get your meals at the coffee pot cafe. I nearly keeled over. I didn't think the Palmer House Hotel in Chicago charged two dollars and fifty cents for a room. But Grandma judged it was fair. She saw a chance to recover, recover some of her tax money from the government. Though, I doubted if she paid taxes. It's steep rent, the stranger said bravely. And the last house in town, Grandma replied. That's how we got our lodger, Arnold Green, the New York artist. Grandma shook him down for $10 in advance. She sent me inside for some of Grandpa Dondle's clothes. And she aimed him at the cob house to skin off what he was wearing. She built up the fire and tossed his traveling clothes into the pot. She threw out his socks and scrubbed his shirt on the washboard. White hair flying. Laundry included in the rent, she said generously. Grandma gave Arnold Green the bedroom facing the Wabash tracks. In its closet was a trap door to the attic. She provided a ladder so he could use the attic for an artist's studio. She was generous to a fault. He collected his easel from the depot and set it up out under the attic's slanting rafters. 
I couldn't sleep upstairs next door to a man. I had to sleep downstairs on a cot at the foot of Grandma's bed. And she could outsnore Aunt May Griswold. But the money was rolling in, so what could I say? Word went out like the wind that Grandma had snagged an artist on government pay and was charging three, four, as much as five dollars a day, depending who told it. Arnold Green was no trouble. He came and went and lurked in the attic most of the time. He was such a small man you hardly noticed him. Not that Grandma didn't take an interest. One night when he was passing through the kitchen on his way up to the coffee pot cafe, she stopped him cold in the door. Though she never pried, she said, You a married man? He said he wasn't. You thinking about getting married and settling down in these parts? He staggered back from the screen door and turned. In these parts? He looked horrified. His hair nearly stood on end. Why not? It's a better climate than New York, said Grandma, who'd never been there. It's the healthiest spot in Illinois. We had to hang a man to start the graveyard. Arnold Green bolted into the night. We sat on the kitchen table over the remains of supper. Grandma, were you pulling his leg? I was giving him fair warning, she said. Maxine Patch found him on the first day. She'll be up at the coffee pot this minute, laying in wait. She's 36 and man-hungry. Grandma's lips pleaded knowingly, and the toothpick pointed out this truth. And there hasn't been an unmarried man around here since the last chain gang went through. I didn't know what to make of that. Maxine Patch had a figure you noticed, but not the face to go with it. And she was 36, so I probably thought that was way too old to be thinking about romance. Besides, I had other matters on my mind. Personal business. Final exams were coming up, and I wasn't pulling my weight in Mr. Hinkemeyer's math class. First semester, I collected a C. Happy to get it. Now I didn't know if I was doing that well. It was business math this spring, full of percentages, dry measures, and profit and loss. I couldn't make head or tail out of it. Royce McNabb was a math whiz. One of the rumors swirling around him was that he was teaching himself trigonometry, whatever that was. And he was the best-looking boy in the county, so I formed a plan. I'd been forming it since Valentine's Day. But now I'd have to speak to Grandma, catching her in her in a, her in a quiet moment. I said, I'm falling a little behind in math. She listened, narrow-eyed. I thought I'd ask the new boy to come over, Royce McNabb, I think his name is, so we could study together. Do tell, Grandma pondered. Think he knows more math than the teacher? Well, no, but then I saw she was pulling my leg. I thought I'd better come clean. Never an easy decision at 16. Grandma, Carlene Lovejoy set her cap for him, and I want to make my move before she makes hers. That was talking her language. We'll squeeze some lemons for a pitcher of lemonade, she said. But that didn't solve everything. I wanted to invite Royce on Sunday afternoon because that's when Grandma napped. The whole town did. We could study in the front room where it's quiet, I said to her carefully. She gazed upon me like the Sphinx. Grandma, I want you to leave us alone. You know, how people talk about you, how you're trigger happy and things like that. I don't want you scaring Royce off. Who, me? She said the image of astonishment. Then I had to get up the nerve to invite Royce and we'd scarcely spoken two words to each other. And I couldn't just barge up to him. Carlene watched him like a hawk all day long, and I didn't want to show my hand. Finally, I wrote him a note. I was better in composition than math. I slipped it to him, and he slipped it back. Written on the note in his square hand was, Okay, Royce, I still have it. As Grandma would say that Sunday afternoon, like to never come. I counted the hours and nearly wore out both my summer dresses, trying them on to decide which to wear. Now I don't remember which I chose. 
When Sunday afternoon finally came, the whole town was sleeping off big dinners as I paced the front room. Grandma was off stage, but audible. I could hear her two rooms away. One of her snores had a whistle in it like Aunt May's. Her other was low and throaty, like pigs eating clinkers. A pitcher of lemonade stood on the marble top table. I was sweating more than it was. For some reason, I thought it would look nice if I was carrying a lacy handkerchief when Royce got there. I heard the kickstand on his bike ring on the concrete of the front walk. I'd unlatched the screen door so I could sweep it open to him without a fumble. It seemed to me I thought everything out. When Royce filled the door, I thought of Joey. Royce was that tall, that broad across the shoulders. Then I fumbled the doorknob because my lacy handkerchief was a damp ball in my hand. I'd ripped it into. And I wished I'd had some perfume to, perfume to wear, just a dab behind each ear in case that worked on a boy. Somehow, I got Royce inside. We stood there alone at last. I was lightly scented with lye soap. His red-gold sunstruck hair was tousled from his bike ride. I stood near enough to have to look up to him. He looked down and spoke to me, really, for the first time. You know, he said in his manly voice, percentages are basically decimals. Maybe we ought to start there. I blinked. Did he notice I didn't put that stuff on my eyelashes that Carlene puts on hers? And no, we weren't going to start that afternoon with decimals. That could lead to fractions. I drew Royce across the airless room to that to the lemonade. We sat there with glasses in our hands, listening to Grandma snore. My grandmother, I explained with a little shrug and a shy smile I never used before. That'd be Mrs. Dondle? Royce looked curious, wary. I nodded, looking aside. Butter wouldn't have melted in my mouth. Royce sat with legs apart, elbows on knees. Actually, he sat, like Grandma did. Then he said, We have something in common, you and me. We do? Oh, how close to simpering I was. Another minute, and you wouldn't know me from Carlene. I'm a stranger here myself, Royce said. I'm from Mattitude. You're from Chicago. We're a couple of foreigners here. Royce McNabb was finding things we had in common without even being prompted. Sweet, silent Sunday afternoon seemed to unfold before us, and I could swear I heard violin music from nowhere. I searched for a reply worthy of Royce. I searched too long. A blood-curdling scream from over our heads cut Sunday afternoon in two. Then mingled screams from up in the attic and crashing and banging like you never heard. Royce came up in a crouch. We both heard Grandma's feet hit the floor by her bed. When she galloped into the front room, she was wearing an old bathrobe and Grandpa Dondle's Romeo house shoes. Her spectacles hung from one ear. On her way through the kitchen, she grabbed up her 12-gauge Winchester from behind the wood box. Where's it coming from? she demanded. Royce shielded at the sight of the gun and Grandma, but we both pointed to the ceiling. Plaster dust sifted down. Now the crashing and banging and running into things was coming from straight overhead, from Arnold Green's room. Oh boy, Grandma said. When Royce could tear his eyes off Grandma in sleepwear, heavily armed, he knocked back his lemonade. The noise from above was still terrific, like the ceiling would give way any second now. But, Bro but Royce looked ready for anything, except what happened next. Somebody was thundering down the stairs. When she came into view, it was Maxine Patch, the postmistress. Draped and coiled all over her was the biggest snake I've ever seen outside the Brookfield Zoo. Maxine was screaming for her life, and that snake was all over her. It looped around her shoulders, where it seemed to have dropped on her. It clung to one of her sizable hips, and there was still snake to spare. And though I couldn't believe my eyes, and heaven knows Royce couldn't believe his, the snake was all that Maxine wore. She did a dance around the platform rocker, barefoot, bare everything except for a rose in her hair. 
She was all ghastly pale, flesh and black snake, and she couldn't shake that snake for all the shimmying in the world. Grandma worked around her to get to the front door. When a scream, with a scream and a hiss, Maxine and the snake leaped through it. They did a fast Hawaiian hula off the porch and skimmed around the snowball bushes, making for town. That's too good a show to keep to ourselves, Grandma said. With the thought, she was through the door and out in the front yard, planting her house shoes. She jammed the Winchester into her shoulder, aimed high, and squeezed off both barrels. The world exploded. Birds rose shrieking from the trees, and the town woke with a start. Royce and I watched from the door. I was half dead with embarrassment. Royce rubbed the back of his neck in a dazed way, but he was all eyes when it came to Maxine's retreating figure. We saw the snake drop off her just as she left our property. But Maxine kept going, racing for the post office. She lived with her folks, the Ivan Patches. But she couldn't go home wearing only a rose. Did she think she could make it all the way to the post office unnoticed? If she'd been thinking at all, she'd have doubled back to brave grandma and get her clothes. But she didn't. When people alerted by the gunfire ran to their windows, they saw Maxine Patch, as nature intended, speeding past their houses and straight into the annals of undying fame. Grandma dragged the shotgun back to the porch pillar. Then she sagged and seemed to weep in mirth or joy. Then she came back inside, pushing past Royce, who seemed turned to stone, though he was never a big talker. Grandma, what in the world was a snake that big doing in the house, I said at the end of my rope. What was any snake doing in there? She propped the smoking gun against the marble tabletop to wipe her wet eyes. She hooked her spectacles over her ears. That snake lives up there, in the attic. So that was what had been thumping right over my room all this time. A hideous, huge, coiling, striking snake directly over my head. Bootsy knew. Grandma, why? Keeps down the birds, Roy said, recovering. That's right, Grandma said. Birds get in under the roof of an old house. You can't keep them out, but a snake will keep them down. Royce was edging around her to the door. Well, I probably ought to get going, he said, but thanks. It was a real interesting afternoon. I never saw, but now he was gone, pedaling away down the walk, and all my hopes went with him. I turned on Grandma, but then we both saw Arnold Green standing there, swaying at the foot of the stairs. He was gray-faced, ashen-lipped. His eyes stared out of his horned rims. He was a wreck in an artist's smock. A brush was frozen in his hand. He tried to speak. Grandma observed him severely. Still in shock, Arnold Green said, Shh, shh, sh she, she's gone, Grandma said. That snake peeled off, but Maxine kept traveling. It f f f it f fell on her in the attic? It lives in the rafters, Grandma said. I forgot to mention that. Arnold Green said, It's been up there all, 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 all along, Grandma said. And I don't allow women upstairs. She was p p p posing, Grandma said. Well, I better make a rule against painting pictures of naked women in my attic. Not n n naked, nude, said Arnold. I studied in Paris. Grandma didn't throw him out and send him on his way. Not at $2.50 a day. Arnold Green brought his easel down from the attic that same Sunday afternoon. Something Grandma said left him with the impression that the snake was gone for good. Still, he nailed the trapdoor shut and painted in his bedroom. I suppose my life was over. On Monday at school, I couldn't even look Royce McNabb's way. I supposed all his worst fears about me had been realized, and then some. Now he thought I lived in a madhouse with a trigger-happy grandma and snakes and naked, nude women in the attic. But everybody was in such an uproar, I was lost in the shuffle. 
People who hadn't even seen her could describe every square inch of Maxine Patch, speeding like Eve, headlong through town on a sunny Sunday afternoon. Augie Fluke said she did the high jump over tree stumps. Ina Ray didn't know what to think, but knew better than to quiz me about it. Then, when we got up for the Pledge of Allegiance, Royce looked back at me and somehow caught my eye. And he winked. That could have meant anything, of course, but I tried to my smi- I tried my shy smile again and hoped for the best. Before that week was out, it began to dawn on me that nobody would hold a little excitement against you in a town as quiet as this one. And just as they'd begun to take him for granted, Arnold Green sparked a new interest. There was some talk about running him out of town. Various church groups called meetings. Shamed, though she was, Maxine had to go back to work at the post office. From the stamp counter, she sent forth word that Arna Green had deceived her. Her reputation was in ruins, and he'd have to marry her. I suppose word of this must, much have, must have reached Grandma. One night, out of the blue, she said to me, You better have your lady teacher here to supper one night. I jumped. Miss Butler? Here? Grandma nodded. She'll be passing out grades pretty soon. You want to keep on the good side of her. I was already on the good side of her. I got the only A's she gave in English. Grandma didn't tell me to invite Mr. Herkemeyer, though she knew how I was doing in math. Grandma, do I have to? Miss Butler looked startled when I invited her for supper. She was too polite to say no, but she gave me a long, curious look. When the evening came, I sat waiting for her in our front room. Grandma had cooked all day, and I was a bundle of nerves. At the sound of a timid knock, I opened the front door to Miss Butler. She was in her dotted Swiss. Well, Mary Alice, she said, how nice. Seeing my teacher in our front room was eerie. It was a new experience for Miss Butler, too. When I showed her to a chair, her eyes roamed the room. She read Grandma's souvenir of starved rock pillow. She noticed the flat square of the carpet where we'd taken down the stove after winter. Since most of what she'd heard about us doddles didn't make for polite conversation, ours drifted. Grandma loomed suddenly in the door to the kitchen in a fresh apron. Come on in, she boomed at Miss Butler, and we'll tie the feed bag on you. Miss Butler quaked. So did I when I saw the kitchen table. It was set with four places. Before I could think, Arnold Green stepped up behind us. His horn rims flashed and my brain buzzed. Miss Butler was so refined, even prim, and there was talk of running Arnold Green out of town for ruining Maxine Patch, and Grandma had invited him to supper. Oh, Grandma, I thought, what are you up to? I fumbled over the introductions. I have heard so much about, I mean, how do you do? Miss Butler murmured to Mr. Green. I knew I couldn't eat a bite, but Grandma bustled around our chairs, loading the table, fried chicken, mashed turnips, hominy with stewed tomatoes, and a casserole of canned green beans and fatback. Since nothing was ready in the garden, there was a quivering green jello mold. There were corn muffins and clover leaf rolls, two kinds of jelly and cut glass dishes, a decorative butter pat from Calgary's dairy farm. You couldn't see the oilcloth. Oh my, murmured Miss Butler. How much? But Arnold Green fell to it. He didn't feed this well up at the coffee pot cafe, and he was a starving artist. Grandma presided from her end of the table, gazing at a gizzard and demolishing a thigh. She piled bones, waiting for the silence to force conversation. At last, Miss Butler chanced a gla- glance across the growing, groaning table at Arnold Green. I was too young to know how much a dangerous man interests a good woman. His glasses were steamed from the dinner, so it was hard to catch his eye. But she spoke. I so admire the artistic temperament. In silence, Grandma loaded a fork with mashed turnip. Miss Butler had a low, pleasing voice when she wasn't yelling at us in school. 
My only talent is appreciation, she said. I sit at the feet of the bard. Arnold Green flickered. Indeed, I look up to all men of artistic talent, Miss Butler said, though she was no shorter than Arnold Green. He looked suddenly across Cruitz at her. Their eyes met. Somehow, Grandma knew. In a town like this, an unmarried man was either going to be packed off or picked off. She decided against Maxine Patch. She backed Miss Butler. For the rest of the month, until he went back to New York, most evenings found Arnold Green strolling to Noah's, Noah Ab- Atterbury's Miss Butler room there. They sat on the porch swing in full view. At the time, I suppose they discussed art and poetry in Paris. He used vittles now and cremel for his dandruff. Grandma kept him in clean shirts. Public opinion shifted his way. Maxine Patch was fit to be tied. And I didn't mind too much about Royce. He was friendly enough, but either he was keeping his distance or I was keeping mine. We'd both been strangers in their midst here, but was that enough? I guessed not and didn't much too mind. Didn't mind too much. Really, not at all. Hardly.